I'm Stefan Koritar and welcome to the Tech Talk Show. This is the podcast where you can discover insights and valuable information about how entrepreneurs build their startup in the tech industry, a collection of open talks about technology and creativity, people, experiences and life around tech business ecosystems. Everything with the main goal to help you get inspired, get started, dream big and build amazing businesses. My guest today is Diana Florescu. Diana is head of marketing at Rainmaking, a global innovation firm using the power of entrepreneurship to build and transform business with the world's leading corporations and startups. In her role, she oversees the company's branding and digital marketing activities across 10 countries. Previously, she led the global marketing of Startup Bootcamp, one of the world's largest network of accelerators investing in technology startups. In 2016, she founded Local Spoon, an innovative solution to food waste, offering delicious surplus food from restaurants, cafes and food markets to enjoy at half the regular price. She ran partnerships with brands such as The Taste of London and won the Lloyd's Banking People's Choice Award, pitching in front of innovators such as Tata, PayPal and many other ventures. She holds a BA in Marketing Communications from University of Westminster and a master's degree in technology entrepreneurship from UCL. Enjoy the talk and remember to subscribe to the podcast. Hi, Indiana, and welcome to Tech Talk. Hi, Stefan. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Diana, what's the weather like in the UK? <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 almost summer, um, almost. Um, it's quite actually quite warm right now. So I think it's we're recording this on Monday. It's bank holiday. It's probably the warmest day in in this month. So everyone is kind of looking forward to going outside and exercising a bit. Uh, but the lockdown, unfortunately, is still still rolling. Um, it's not open yet, as in Romania, just yet. But Fingers crossed, maybe going for a bike ride later. <laughs> yeah, but I guess you can get uh, get outside like close to your house or something in the neighborhood to just absorb that um, sunlight and get some you know, good energy. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I left London um, a couple of months ago and I'm basically staying outside of London. So um, I get to exercise quite a lot and go outside. Otherwise, in, in the city, it's just it almost... It's really, really hard to go outside and spend a lot of time without obviously kind of raising any, um, any suspicion. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, I'm quite fortunate in that case. Well, it means that you have uh, plenty of uh, silent nights and uh, silence <laughs> around, right? So if you're clo- out of London. Yes, yes. No, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I think England countryside, it's really really nice um i haven't experienced myself too much so this pandemic i think after all has been a has been a good thing um quite relaxing i have to yeah, say <laughs> like an extended pto right <laughs> yes yes exactly. exactly exactly well um i'm happy that you said yes to have this podcast and uh, uh i'm looking forward to a fruitful conversation around uh, what we had uh, prepared for today me too. I love the questions. So um, I'm just looking forward to dive into it. Okay, cool. Uh, Diana, we know each other from all kinds of um, events, right? From, from the tech scene. And um, 
I've been looking like in uh, when I was preparing to um, to see what kind of questions and what we can discuss about. Um, I was looking on your you know, right on your LinkedIn profile and I've seen um, so many things that you've done in the past. And my sole question was, when did this girl have the time to do all those things? Right. <laughs> um, so my question was like, there was one particular thing that caught my attention that was you had like a fast three years of pure education and volunteering. Like, how did you do it? What What are your secret, secrets like in terms of studying and volunteering in the same time? When how was that? Yes, so um, I think it was was definitely volunteering, but it was also working at the same time throughout my studies. Um, and I mean, there's no secret uh, when I moved to the UK. It's been six years now, um, just just over six years. Um, Obviously, I, I moved here with the idea of having a degree, getting a degree. And um, at that point, I didn't even plan to stay or I wasn't even sure if I want to work in a corporate. Um, but I knew that for me to stay in the UK, um, I, I had to find a job. So I had to sustain myself financially. And it was probably one of the best things that really happened to me because this pushed me to um, look for opportunities, um, always kind of be be on the spot, speaking to people, going for networking events. And I think shortly after I um, moved to the UK, um, I, I just started just doing different part-time jobs and as you said, volunteer projects. Um, and in, I, I mean, I guess there's, there's no lie in that, it hasn't been easy. Um, I, at some point I had probably, well, from a legal point of view, I had two or three contracts signed, being employed at the same time, part-time and doing my, uh, my bachelor degree um, in marketing at University of Westminster. But I think it's, it's quite different. The educational system in the UK is quite different. Um, and I think from Romania, coming from Romania um, in high school, you, you know that you have to study about 15 subjects a, a year. Um, so you, you do study a lot. And mm. once you move here, the, the actual um, kind of activities or the types of learnings that you do is very practical. Um, it involves more exercise than actually studying or learning. So that really helped me um, to kind of ease up some time so that I could do some some other roles on a side. But yeah, if, if it wasn't for me kind of trying to go out and do some part-time jobs, I wouldn't have had the, the chance to work in a startup when I was still doing my bachelor degree. And that job kind of changed the course of the upcoming years and how I actually end up where I am today. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, practice-driven education. And, well, I don't know so much the, the education system in, uh, in the UK, but I'm happy that it is in, in that way. And um, I can relate to that because um, I could do a parallel between, you know, the Romanian education system, which is more like, theoretical driven learn 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 um, and then you go out and work but I had the opportunity one uh, once I moved to Cluj um, you know I had to start integrating myself into the society over here and I joined the, uh, the JCI club and um, I signed up as a project manager for that and um, I learned more in that couple of months than I learned like maybe in the entire <laughs> faculty degree with the level that uh, you have of education over here, but uh, 
it was a practice driven uh, thing. So uh, I think you learn more into that. Um, what was the most important experience you had since you started studying and working in the, like, let's say in Western Europe, right? Because you've been to Germany, UK and all those. Places. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a really good question. And I think it's quite a tough one because from, if I think from an educational um, perspective, I would say it's, it's the kind of this degree of openness um, that you, you experience when you come to the UK um, and you, you interact with so many cultures, right? So that it just opens up horizons or you start thinking, okay, well, what, what can I do next? Um, you start thinking about what kind of solutions or types of products or services work in certain countries um, and what you could potentially bring to the UK or even back home. Um, but I think what really sort of intensified, if you want, this, um, this degree of openness is when I was exposed to startups. Um, and that's what I was, I was saying earlier in, I think it was my last year of university, um, when um, after doing a few jobs and I was in Germany, I, I spent some time in Germany as well. I came back to the UK and I started working as, um, I think at that point it was marketing assistant for a tech um, technology startup which was quite early stage and that role which for me I just thought is going to be maybe a, a year of some sort of apprentice to help me get another role just opened my eyes completely and I had the chance to do so many inside of that startup not just marketing specific but in being involved or being open to um, help towards raising investment, um, also traveling overseas, supporting the startups from operational standpoint. And at that point, I just, I knew that I just don't want to leave the university and go into a graduate scheme or a corporate job. Um, and that's, that basically what helped me towards launching my own startup. And through that, I, I was basically exposed to startup bootcamp. Um, and that, yeah, that opened just the a realm of possibilities in terms of working with founders. Um, I got to work in four or five other countries. Um, I was based out of Qatar last year, um, running the program for Sports Tech um, Accelerator, the first Sports Accelerator in Qatar and Middle East. Um, and then I had the chance to move to the US for some time and launch the office for Rainmaking, which is a corporate innovation consultancy firm. Um, so I don't think, I can't pinpoint specific experience, but I think there was the trigger, I would say, was that startup job that I had four or five years ago that kind of triggered the sequence of events up till now. Okay. I'm going to just two flash questions in one. What, and please ask, please respond just with one word, right, for both yeah. questions. What was the hardest thing you did in that startup job? And why? Just two words. In the first question, one word, and mm. one word for the second one. Um, I think validating the idea, and I know it's more than two words. Okay. <laughs> the concept um, is one, right? Yes. Yeah, I think was getting, or probably in the startup world, you would say kind of more product market fit mm -hmm. for that okay. startup. Yeah. So you're head of marketing today, but to get to that position, you have to have 
a certain degree of passion of drive within that um, within that space. Where does your passion for marketing and entrepreneurship uh, where does it come from? Yeah, it's a good. It's a really good question because um, I mean I think a lot of people probably don't know about this, but um, when I was younger and probably even more recently. Um, I always thought that I would end up practicing law <laughs> or going for a law degree instead. Um, so I didn't grow up and was constantly thinking about marketing. Um, and yet I was, I've always been inspired by um, how some of the biggest brands actually got to where they are today. Um, so I was always reading and I was always inspired by um, kind of founders and how, how they got to build some of the most powerful brands in history. And I guess in a subliminal way, maybe it started with my mom um, as well when I was when I was still young. Um, she's working as a senior marketing researcher in Romania, so that she she's probably kind of the only person in my family, obviously working in the same space that uh, got to influence my decision later on. Um, so that would probably justify the marketing passion. But to be honest with you, Stefan entrepreneurship was not on my mind when I left uh, Romania. I mean, I was. I was almost 18, 18 years old. And um, I don't know if a lot has changed since then, but in high school, being an entrepreneur or not going to university, but instead launching your own startup, that was out of discussion. I mean, you had to go for a university degree. You had to get a a good job and a well-paid job. And then later on in life, maybe you can do something that you're passionate about. Yeah. So I moved to the UK and... For a first couple of years, I, I just, yeah, I just, I basically just worked my ass off really for everything <laughs> that I wanted, but I, I wasn't sure. I just, I think the moment I start meeting people here and kind of getting more and more exposed to investments and startups and honestly, the, the range of possibilities for a young person to launch their own company in the UK is just mind blowing. Um, the only thing you just need, you just need drive and passion because the university would support you. The government would support you. You've got mentors and experts and serial entrepreneurs that they would support you if you ask for help. So I think all you need is just drive. So I think this sort of passion for entrepreneurship kind of grew on me um, since my early years in university. And then through yeah throughout i just got i just got to enjoy it and then being exposed to it i was like this is what i want to do <laughs> <laughs> well um this is how i see it i see that it runs in the family and in the bloodline right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i yes my family doesn't they don't own their own business um and at this point in time i don't own my own business anymore um however it's i think it's just a matter of time and you know we've spoken about it but it's mm. only a matter of time until i get back into this uh, but marketing is still is still something that it's of course remains a passion um am i going to be working in this industry in three years from now i'm not sure but it's one of those industries where i think there's a formidable change um that we've seen in this industry happening the last two decades and it's a kind of change that makes you excited it's not a change that will disrupt the industry to the extent there won't be jobs but it's, it's the action is the other thing so it, you, you see so many career prospects in terms of marketing i mean only if you look at digital media and how it has fundamentally changed in the last yeah. 50 years yeah. from tv to the main advertising vehicle being online spend is just absolutely fantastic so 
I'm, I'm really excited about this space. What would you say that are some key differences between how marketing is done in Eastern Europe in comparison to Western Europe? Mm, it's, it's a really good question. And I think, I mean, we could probably spend hours debating about this, but <laughs> the main thing is just looking at, it's just looking at the, the type of kind of traditional marketing and the more, the more kind of new marketing channels that we, we have nowadays. And usually uh, the distribution of a country's total ad spend between this old and new uh, media kind of shows the level of maturity. So this is probably the most striking difference between Eastern and Western countries. It's the online ad spend, which I think was probably about a decade ago or seven years ago that um, overtook TV, right? So in the UK. In the UK. Uh, yes. So more in the Western mm -hmm. countries, of course. Yes. So in the UK, um, as even as of now, well, it will be interesting to talk about also how this uh, marketing or media ad spend is actually changing during COVID because there's some interesting um, facts in that as well. But in the UK, the, the mobile ad spend is obviously it's, um, it's, it's a top priority. Um, hmm. Well, if you look in Romania, uh, more the traditional advertising channels. So we've got print, outdoor, uh, so media, TV, um, they're still the ones that are reaching um, the, the largest population. They're still the ones still prevailing. So that's, that to me is the, is the key difference. But then if you think about this striking difference and if you actually apply it to the startup mindset, that actually tells a lot. Because if you're a Romanian founder starting a company for the first time, um, and especially when you're, if you're in a market which is, let's say, quite saturated or it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's on a mature stage, what is really going to differentiate you from the others is your brand. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that mindset of digital experimentation or you don't know um, kind of the, the types of channels that you got out there because you always think that it's TV and media and uh, outdoor that uh, reaches the, number of the highest number of people, then that I just I can just imagine that could be overwhelming, and you could only think about doing marketing probably at quite a later stage in your startup development, uh, probably after you raise money and after you've got already a product out the door. Where in the UK, marketing and particularly digital experimentation is something that it's it's actually fundamental for trying to test your product, your idea, mm -hmm. from a very early stage. So you just got an idea and the next thing that you do, okay, how can I actually get this idea out the door to test it very quickly? Um, so, yeah, I think the striking difference really influences also how you do the marketing down the line, especially for small um, and medium-sized companies. I agree. And um, um, I think you're spot on with a very clear thing that uh, can be seen from, from, from your comparison that... Uh, it's a engineering driven culture, right? So um, entrepreneurs are more focused on building the stuff and over building it, right? Um, making it more beautiful, more beautiful than actually going uh, quickly into the market and test it. But in the same time, just listening to your words, um, uh, I realized that it is important to know facts like this, that for example, Eastern Europe um, or Romania particularly has more um, ad spend in the more traditional media like outdoor printing or television, right? Because as a founder, if you want to go European, 
level, right? Scaling or global, you would like to know these things, right? <clears throat> where to spend that ad. You want to spend uh, that ad where the, let's say the, the people's attention is focused, right? So it's, if there's, if it's focused on, on television, then you're going to spend, um, you know, ad money and marketing money on television. If that works for that, for that culture. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, Romain is working only in that, but just as a, as a principle, right? Yes. Yeah. So I think you have to look at all this kind of underlying consumer behaviors and buying patterns between economies when comparing the, the different marketing strategies. Um, because I mean, we could be, we could go so granular that you could even start um, differentiating the type of, let's say, um, ad types that would say would work for um, an economy like the UK or a specific type of industry compared to Romania, right? So it could also be the ad, not just mm -hmm. the channel, but also so detailed towards the actual ad type that you actually you, you do for these channels. Um, but yeah, I think there's, uh, it's definitely, there's definitely still a striking difference between the two um, in, in terms of how marketing is done today. Yeah. What would be, or what do you think is the one marketing tactic that works for for all startups to get traction or that get market traction i just have to disappoint you <laughs> and say that there's no one absolute I, truth <laughs> i don't yeah unfortunately i don't think there's one marketing tactic or um somehow a magical activity that a startup can do to feel growth um and I mean, to be honest, it shouldn't be. Um, I think instead of kind of thinking in silos about specific marketing channels, I think it's more beneficial to look at marketing through the lens of product lifecycle stages, right? Mm -hmm. So each stage of the product lifecycle sort of has implications for your marketing strategy. Um, and it's not that much about where your product is, but also just having a quick look at where your competitors is on this product lifecycle stage. So, um, if you think of an introduction phase, let's say if you're a startup that hasn't launched yet or you're just thinking to launch, for me at that point, the focus would be on trialing and trying to kind of build my tribe of fans, if you want. Um, so things that you can do is kind of trying to solve the problem perfectly for a small number of people um, instead of doing a poor job for a larger market. Um, you would start to think at that point, okay, which kind of pricing, what pricing strategy am I going to do or am I going to adopt? Am I going to go for a high price or am I actually going to try to have a cheap penetration in the market? Uh, because that is so fundamental, how is actually going to influence people's perception about your brand down the line. And I think everyone knows, obviously, Apple example and the way they position themselves right from the beginning, um, being so high-end and obviously um uh, a high price um high pricing in terms of the the, the actual what market was offering at that point um and that really influenced people's perception down the line um and it also depends on what sort of product you have and how mature the the the, the industries in which you're operating because for even for early stage startup if you have a compelling idea if you're doing it much better than the existing incumbents that I think PR and essentially content at that stage could actually work quite well for these companies. Mm -hmm. So that would be, that's an example of a startup or a founder that it's, 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 an, it's an introduction stage. 
um, naturally, if you're moving into the growth stage, I think at that point, you're going to start thinking about distribution. So you already sort of validated your concept. You're building some sort of um, tribe or community around your product. Now you start to think, okay, how can I actually do this better than the existing incumbents? And unless, you know, you are a website, um, so you're to say an e-commerce platform, um, I think you just need at that point to break out the social media hype. Um, so you just have to, at this stage for me is a stage where you just try to find scalable, repeatable models. Um, you can test loads of channels, you can test loads of tactics, the whole idea is to increase this, um, the possibility um, of, of your efforts to show some sort of return. And then once you get out of this mature stage, or sorry, this growth stage, then you, you find yourself um, in, in the mature stage, which is kind of the final stage before declining. But let's not talk about that because obviously, hopefully you want to stay at, stay at the mature stage and try to, yeah. to milk that, that product and market. Um, and what's a clear sign of a mature stage? Uh, I mean, every company that is acquiring new people, not new customers, and you're getting these customers from, particularly from your competition, then that to me is a clear sign that, okay, I'm at a mature stage. Um, and if you just look at telco companies or internet providers, um, I mean, that's the perfect example and the easiest one as well. Um, which shows that uh, they're, they're willing to give you some sort of trial. They're willing to waive some of the sign-up fees just for you to actually change, switch from one provider to another, right? Um, so when you, when you, I guess, when you reach that stage as a founder, for me at that point, the, the focus would be on brand building. It would be on maximizing profits, would be on defining market share, um, and trying to think how you can make your competitors almost irrelevant. Um, so at this stage, things such as differentiating your product or trying a new demographic for your product or a new usage for your product, it becomes relevant. Um, so there's no, I don't think there's one tactic <laughs> kind of to sum up. I think it's more about thinking of where, where am I in this product lifecycle stage and how mature in the, is the industry in which I'm, I'm actually operating in. Dan, yeah, that was a trick question. You, you, you were spot on uh, on the right answer. Oh, okay, I, I, I passed. Right. Yeah. Uh, just joking over there. Uh, but one thing caught my uh, caught my attention, uh, and you spoke about this, and we spoke about it um, also um, outside of the podcast is around validation, right? And how mm -hmm. important it is. Um, what is the most efficient way to get product market fit? Mm, your questions are quite difficult, I have to say. <laughs> um, again, I I'm just trying to add value. That's it. Absolutely, and I hope I hope uh, this also adds value to the listeners. Uh, but I just I just have to say again. I mean, I could generalize, but always when I generalize, there's the risk of uh, oversimplifying. I guess the answers where with product market fit, it's so highly debatable. Of course, depending on your mm. business model and your industry and so many other factors. But I think there's, there's definitely channels or activities that work better for certain types of businesses and models and at a lower cost than obviously traditional advertising. So that's another thing to have in mind when you're a startup, um, especially at an earlier stage, you don't always have the luxury of, 
overspending or having a huge marketing budget. Um, and what tends to work quite well, especially if you're a platform as a business, is normally word of mouth um, and referrals, uh, which are quite preferred for this type of business. Um, PR as well and um, kind of product iterations and customer feedback. If you think about them, for example, a practical example, if you take Slack, um, the, mm. uh, the communication platform of the core kind of collaborating platform, if you want, um, this is what sort of fueled their growth and made them so successful in sh such short period of time. They just, they basically just focus on word of mouth, uh, good PR, and arguably this is not always the case, but in with Slack founder, he had Flickr behind him, so he already had um, mm -hmm. an exit startup that was successful. He used that and putting all of this together basically made it so successful that in, I think in less than three years or four years since they launched, they acquired Atlassian, one of their biggest competitors. So I think for them was, was these three channels, but also another thing that's important, I think as a startup is not, it's to know how you get to product market fit, but also to know when you reach product market fit. And I think to know when you reach product market fit, it's all about uh, kind of understanding or trying to set up some sort of finding a magic number for yourself or mm -hmm. a North star or whatever works for you. And that could take different forms. It could be perhaps your co a virality coefficient. If you're a platform, um, it could be retention rates. It could be uh, sales, for example, if you're a SaaS business, but you just need to know that number. And for Slack, um, it was the 2000 messages. So when they observed that when a team had exchanged 1000 messages between each other, that then that particular company or client then was very, very likely to stick to Slack at that point. Oh, wow. I didn't knew that. Yeah. So this, I mean, I, I love this kind of nice. stories. I always yeah. love this growth hack stories. Um, yeah. so I think as a founder, it's just one simple question. What's your, what's the magic number? Uh, that that would basically sort of uh, correlate or show that you're at least getting closer or you're at a prime market fit. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting. See, I mean that that um, thing over there with that magic number, I think, can trump um, any kind of you know product market fit tactic, uh, you know, framework, whatever it would be, because that magic number is going to be. Um, in most of the cases, very unique to the business type and to the business model, right? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, like for example, Slack, who would know? I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't know that, you know, that 2000, uh, you know, messages or words exchange would, would mean that that uh, client would stay with them. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. It, it all depends on your business model. Absolutely. I mean, if, if let's say if you're, um, um, it's the same thing that happened, for example, with Facebook. Uh, I don't know exactly precisely the number, but I think it's when people had invited at least another five connections. Then to, for Facebook, basically at that point, they knew that they, um, you're, you're basically going to stick to the platform. So for them, hmm. was that uh, this 2,000 messages from Slack basically translated into a virality coefficient, which showed that um, one person inviting another five people, then, well, that person is a loyal customer to me or a loyal, let's say, Facebook user. So it's quite, it's quite, I mean, you, you already said it, Stefan. So it's, it's, very, it's very much important about um, trying to understand what works for your business. And uh, once, you, once you reach that number, then you, you know that you've got 
a scalable, repeatable, it's, or it's a viable business model because, yeah, people are going to continue using it. Hmm. Well, see, that's the, the second thing. I didn't even knew that for, uh, <laughs> for, you know, for Facebook. Um, we should do a separate episode just about yeah, talking about <laughs> definitely <laughs> only about numbers. growth hacks. <laughs> only about growth hacks. Um, yeah. That's very cool. Um, Diana, you're running right now marketing at a, a venture development company firm. One of the, let's say, we could say easily one of the uh, well-known in, uh, in Europe. We do have some of them. Um, all these uh, studios are very early in the game, but you're running marketing for one of them, right? Uh, Rainmaking. Um, but before going into discussing more about it, I just want to start discussing about what is venture development so that can so that our audience and listeners can understand better why do we have it and what it is right so my question just you know from this prep what is venture development yes um i think it's venture development can also take so many forms and shapes to be honest but um if you think about the concept of venture development what it actually what it does or what allows you is to just quickly explore, um, exploit and own new strategic areas of growth, which happens outside your core business model or competencies, right? Um, so if you think of the realm of innovations or what you can do in, a, in, a, in an ecosystem, in a startup ecosystem, um, it could be internal venture building. So you work um, in a corporate, you can actually try to implement some of the lean star methodologies inside the corporate and you do that with your own employees. Um, you can then move basically from inside the corporate to seeking an outside in um, innovation model, which that normally translates into corporate startup engagements. And I'm not going to go too much into detail, but there's so much you can do in this space. Um, it can be from accelerators, incubators to more specific and valuable forms of engagement, such as commercial pilots. And then you've got venture building, right? So this is basically what um, you would <laughs> normally find mentioned as something that is happening kind of horizon three. So it's normally more a bit down the line where a corporate would try to seek new products or services outside of their core business model. Um, but venture building, I think, the studios are coming really different flavors. Um, I think there's significant difference between design studios, um, which again, it's, I think it's more of a trend that started in, in the US and in Europe um, mm -hmm. to fee-based consultancies um, and then actual like real venture builders, uh, which the one, this one can be done in-house. So it can be done together with entrepreneurs, um, a similar example is Entrepreneur First in the UK, where they support really skillful people or senior entrepreneurs to build new ventures from scratch, and it's done in-house. Or what I really, really like or I'm passionate about, it's this kind of corporate venture building model where you, you tend to explore new concepts with a corporate partner uh, with the idea to building a venture that is suitable for the need so then down the line in four or five years, the corporate can incorporate this new company um, inside the parent company. So I think in a, in, a, in, a short, in a short answer, this is 
what basically venture building is and the, the different possibilities of uh, looking at venture building studios. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a, I think that's very um, helpful. And I think it's a very ground root uh, description of what venture development is. Um, you said accelerators at a particular moment and that it is within venture development, which is correct. But um, what we can see is that there's um, a lot of movement still, but has been a lot of movement around accelerators and doing accelerators. And like I said, we still have it. But with the upcoming wave of venture building, which is more condensed and more process driven and more um, value added driven and actually built uh, companies from those ideas-ish startups, um, what would you say, um, or let's say venture development versus accelerators, which program has more economic impact? It's, again, I think I just need to oversimplify this in uh, um, probably thinking about the time that we have left, but it's, it's, I would, I would say from showing really tangible results to both parties, but particularly to the corporate, um, I would say by far would be venture building model. Um, accelerators, I would never disregard accelerators from the actual role in building a tech ecosystem because it's quite important. If you think about job creation, if you think about kind of galvanizing or stirring the um, investors to invest in early stage founders, but also um, changing this mindset, especially among younger people or um, other founders that, that never thought of approaching entrepreneurship before, I think accelerators they do offer a great platform for testing and validating, uh, maybe getting a bit of money, getting a bit of traction. Um, but it kind of stops there, to be honest. I mean, if you think about, if you think about um, showing really tangible results for the corporate that is, let's say, sponsoring an accelerator, um, it's really hard to demonstrate the value of an accelerator to the company. And I'm not talking about putting on a brand show or doing any branding exercises showing that you're supporting the accelerator because this is what happens most of the time. Corporations tend to get involved in, in, a, in an early stage accelerator uh, to kind of build this positioning or the, the image around um, an ecosystem supporter or, or an advocate of startups. Uh, and that's fine, but I think we just need to for a mature market or for, for, a, for a country that is ready or a region that is ready to really move towards kind of uh, an innovation that is going to move the needle, um, you, you have to consider some, some more specific types of innovation and venture building is one of them. So if you think of what really shows results and also increases the chances of um, survival. So it's a clear indication because you asked me which one or which one actually shows results. You just have to look at number of startups that have been scaled or accelerated by the two types and then look at survival rates and the investment that they receive. And you can see that normally the survival rate of startups that have gone out of an accelerator compared to the startups that have actually been um, sort of, I guess, conceived inside a venture building, it's, is, is quite high. So the survival rate among 
venture building um, companies um, are, are much higher and they also have much more chances to raise investment uh, because they are conceived by normally serial entrepreneurs so they're skillful people and they are conceived with um, already a partner that could actually help the startup grow and also raise investment down the line so um, yeah I I would just oversimplifying, of course, without going to much detail, I think it's it's venture building that would normally yield much, much more results. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm um, sure you I'm a, do. <laughs> I'm a big fan, right? I'm <clears throat> I'm a big fan of venture development and I agree we we don't have to disregard accelerators. They have their own um, place and role in the overall um, startup ecosystem. So definitely not, but uh, looking to a more um, long-term and sustainable uh, way of doing entrepreneurship in tech. I think uh, venture development has its place over there, definitely. Um, yeah, I think there's no, there's definitely no doubt that a major um, contributor to a, this disruption really is due to the startup that um, you know the accelerators and the the um, quantum of startups that we've seen uh, in the last decade and the venture capital. Venture, I think venture building, they need, and I think we'll, we can, we'll definitely talk about this later in, in the conversation. It just needs, it needs a, um, uh, a fertile environmental ground for this mm -hmm. to happen. It can't just, yeah, it can't just happen without having some, uh, these predecessors, right? So accelerators and venture capital established. Uh, so everything has its role in this ecosystem after all. Mm -hmm. But yes, if you look at the actual return of investment, um, especially for investors, but also for uh, the people that are involved in the studio, it's, 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 yeah, it's definitely the venture building model. What I like to think about it is, um, is or, or how I like to think about it is that venture development is just uh, another, you know, the next version of accelerators, a more optimized and improved version of accelerators, um, you know, from, because from what I've seen from from the research that I've done is that you have, um, let's say in the old setup or even present setup, you have accelerators which do just one thing. And then let's say you have a business that has been accelerated and it goes out of the accelerator. And then the question appears, what's next, right? So, you know, we're looking at a culture that is engineering slash building driven and um, poor or let's say less, uh, less uh, business knowledge and, and skills and marketing skills like uh, Romania has, uh, or compared to the Western side, not so evolved. Um, you know, the question was, okay, what's gonna happen to that startup that went out, out of, scalar, out of a, a, an accelerator? So that's why I think that venture development or venture building came here in a very, um, let's say, optimized and improved way that they are, um, putting all those processes together, um, the MVP building, the go-to-market, the traction, the validation, the product market fit, and then the final, let's say, the cherry on the top is that they support you in the follow-up funding, right? Yeah. So I think it's a more systematic, sustainable-driven uh, formula to, to build actual startups in the tech ecosystem. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, a venture building is it's probably one of to be honest it's also a very sexy type of innovation right mm -hmm. so everyone is now um getting much more interested in in venture studios let's say rather than an accelerator which if you look at 
what's happening in the UK. I mean, accelerators, they're a thing of the past. Um, I've, I've had the chance to also explore more like kind of the, the emerging ecosystem, let's say in Qatar and in Dubai and accelerators that we once run in the UK like six years ago, they're obviously now a huge wave in these countries because they're still, these accelerators still make sense. I mean, these accelerators are still trying to say to bring international entrepreneurs to these markets and trying to help them perhaps set up a legal entity and do business in Qatar, which especially in Qatar, for example, it's, it's quite a difficult market um, to entry. But I also think apart from venture studios, there might be some other opportunities to help uh, startups once they got out of an accelerator, uh, especially in countries like Romania, which I think this is where we are heading towards, which is really mm-hmm. exciting to watch. It's that collaboration that you could actually have with corporations. And I'm not just talking about them supporting the accelerator. It's more about, okay, so you've gone out of an accelerator right now. Ideally, that accelerator, to me, the perfect model is that they would have their own fund. So then some of the most kind of promising or growth stage startups that you have, accelerate them or try to help them towards bridging that next round of funding they could get. Um, mm-hmm. And then move that accelerator onto perhaps a pilot program with specific corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, to me, it's almost like a, it's a middle ground between the accelerator and actually doing this leapfrog towards a venture studio. So if you're not yet ready, you could still try to explore this um, startup collaboration um, kind of area, which is really exciting. And I think if you look at the value that could create for both parties. I mean, it's much higher than each of the parties could actually create on its own. Um, so that's, that's another way of thinking about what could actually help uh, startups after they leave normally an accelerator or an incubator program. Yeah, closing the gaps, right? Yeah. Do you think Romania is ready to have a venture development <laughs> studio? <laughs> uh, Maybe this is just wishful thinking, but I want to say yes. <laughs> uh, I think we just got, I think we got to consider what factors or kind of ingredients can create that fertile environment I was talking about earlier for a venture studio to succeed. Um, and I think in recent years, corporates have matured to understand why they're having such trouble responding to innovation. Um, and I think it's both a, a, a a trouble or a matter of will and skill problem. Um, so it's part culture, part knowledge and process. And I think it depends on the type of uh, venture building model. So um, venture building models, especially like in, in, it could be part of the answer in geographies or industries that I have a high degree of innovation um, and strong education institutions like Romania has but a lower ability to bring that innovation to market. So it could be less developed entrepreneurial culture or less capital available, which again, is also the case of Romania, or it could be high um, bureaucracy or other boundaries for market expansion. So I think if we're, if we're thinking of having a in-house studio of creating the startups from basically from scratch together with entrepreneurs, um, I believe Romania is falling into this really good category. Um, I think we've got loads of really great research institutions and really bright people. Um, 
And it would be really interesting to see this space, how this is going to evolve in the next two, three years. And hopefully this would also kind of try to galvanize the, the investor space as well. But the approach that excites me, and I think this is where I'm, I can't say I'm completely sure, I wouldn't say yes or no. Um, it's the, the potential impact of the actual ecosystem, um, how it actually could grow if we look at the corporate venture building model. Um, and as I was saying earlier, it's, it's normally a matter of having the right people and skills, um, a rigorous structure and the KPIs in place. So if we think of people and skills, do we have serial entrepreneurs that could come back or would they be interested to start working on a new venture? Um, I think we're definitely getting there. And perhaps a studio like this could actually be a really great incentive for some of really great serial entrepreneurs that we have overseas to try to come back and be involved for a couple of years in a venture, uh, in a new venture in Romania. Um, do we have a rigorous structures? And what I mean by that, it normally kind of boils down to a corporate mindset. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when you're building a, a, a new venture with, with a corporate, you just need to ensure at least you don't necessarily need somebody from the corporate to be um, a founder for the new venture, but you need to know that you can rely on somebody inside the venture that they could open doors for you. They know how to integrate this new, newly built venture back into the corporate, let's say in four or five years, if you want to sell it. Um, there's also a degree of knowledge when it comes to dealing with complex term sheets and cap tables and share ownerships, which this sort of things, I think this sort of learnings normally come from a quite established VC, um, yeah. VC kind of word or um, uh, area. And I think we're still kind of lacking that sort of knowledge in Romania. And also normally a corporate, um, they don't tend to have the venture capital skills uh, in-house. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of outsourcing. Um, so that's, this is the second area, the rear structure, I think we definitely need to work on. Um, and then um, another thing is the, um, um, it's, you could also see some, maybe some clear indications that the market is ready or at least the corporate is thinking about it. And one indication, even though it kind of, it, it rejects sort of the idea of venture building. It's sort of uh, antagonizing the venture building space. It's CVC. So it's corporate venture capital. Mm -hmm. um, if a corporate has an allocated budget towards R&D and towards corporate venture capital, um, that's, again, a clear indication they're at least considering and thinking about it or they're mature enough. But normally it also becomes at a danger for the ventures for a venture studio to actually convince the company to leave the CVC behind and try to actually create a venture with a venture studio uh, because CVC actually what translates is that it shows that the, the corporate just wants to do it in house um, and they want to invest in their own ventures and that comes with a huge risk um, and normally the corporate again is not suited enough to build that on their own. Um, so these are, yeah, I, it's hard to tell precisely yes or no, but I think it depends on the venture building model that we're doing. I think an in-house model definitely works for Romania. And I would, I would be really interested to see how we can build um, or how we can grow this ecosystem to also make it ready for a corporate venture building model. I was discussing with Paul Brie, 
one of my uh, good mm-hmm. friends and he is building uh, this awesome company uh, um, uh, co uh, autogen um, what, what was it the pitch line it was um, automated code generation right uh, mm-hmm. cool AI technology and he was saying at a particular moment that um, for us to really have a chance in making it in um, get a strong position in the market as a product building product driven market we have to collaborate right and listening to you uh, that was uh, it was collaborate all over the place for me while I was listening right because uh, the corporate has to collaborate with the startup industry or the startup more dynamic uh, ecosystem right and in the same time then collaborate with the venture capital and I think um, for in order to do that, they have to have an open mindset around it, exactly like you said. Um, so, in a, in a logical step, it would be open mindset, uh, collaboration, and then just you know just listen to the people that are more connected to the tools that are at hand to the startups. Tools like you know fundraising and European funds, because you can easily get you know like uh, the same approach that we have. Uh, get a CVC to collaborate with a venture development studio um, to set up that, you know, basic minimum fund for an MVP and then do a follow-up uh, fundraising on European investments. I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a strategy and formula that it's set for winning um, at least, you know, until the market says yes or no. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think it's, the corporate just needs to understand. And I think it's hard when you're dealing with really, really large organizations, um, massive brands that I'm sure they have subsidiaries in Romania as well. Um, because sometimes it, it just doesn't come down to their decision. I think most of the time it just, it's a directive that comes from the HQ, uh, which mm-hmm. sits outside of Romania, but they just need to understand that it's, it's less dangerous. Um, it's more high, highly, um, more likely and highly to succeed mm-hmm. if you are trying to collaborate with um, uh, a venture studio or serial entrepreneurs. They've done it. They've built a scalable model, um, and they they basically they can do it with you. And you you're spot on in terms of the investment that you need. Um, I think it's absolutely crucial, personally as a venture studio, to also have your own fund. Um, because then you could co-invest with a corporation that again shows sign that you, you've got, you got, you got skin in the game. You, um, it's less for them, for the corporation is perceived as being less risky, mm-hmm. of course, uh, when, when they see somebody else co-investing, but also it's so important to retain that ownership because the moment you open up the possibility for other investors to invest in that venture, it just makes it less appealing and less likely for the corporate to to basically buy it um, or integrate it into their into their company, um, and also it kind of it's, it it could affect the valuation as well that you're discussing with the corporate. Um, so, it's personally for me in terms of funding, um, it would be much better to start with your own fund, co-invest with the corporations, and only try to convince the corporate to invest back in the business mm-hmm. um, in, 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 in the upcoming four or five years of engagement. You were saying at a particular moment, uh, something around share split and share management. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had the opportunity to witness or to see 
uh, this topic uh, in your in your um, professional career. What what is the equity dynamic in a multi partnership um, venture building or startup building? Like, what's the dynamic over there? So normally a venture studio. So if we take example um, of, of your team, Stefan, so you guys as a venture studio, you would normally retain an equity in every venture that you build. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of describing the process right now of a corporate venture building model. Um, so you as a venture studio, you retain equity. The corporate, however, they act as a majority uh, stakeholder in the company. So uh, when I say majority, doesn't mean that they have 50%, but they have obviously more shares than you do. Uh, sometimes tends to be 35 or 40%. Um, and there's usually a 10% equity stake that it's allocated to the CEO of the new venture, uh, which sometimes it's definitely somebody external. So it's very rare to actually have somebody from the corporate to be the CEO. Um, and 10% to the CTO. So these two co-founders, normally retain about 20% equity um, and also a general practice to create an option pool of the remaining. Sometimes it's eight or 10% for the first employees to join the venture. So that's, yeah, in terms of that numbers could obviously vary um, to with every venture, but essentially you've got 40% or so majority um, stakeholder corporate You've got 20% going to the co-founder, so you've already got 60%. Normally, the venture studio retains 25%, um, and then the remaining 10 or 15 goes to um, having us an option pool. What would be the perfect time to present a startup studio-born company to investors? Uh, I think it all, again, depends on, depends on circumstances and the model of the, of the venture studio. I would say probably from the moment you validated the concept and you start seeing traction. So mm-hmm. again, I keep referring back to entrepreneur first because everyone knows this, this example or let's say founders factory. It's, it's another uh, popular one. If you've got a startup that is, was conceived in house and you've seen traction, you validated the, 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 the concept, then I think, yeah, at that point it's ready. It's, it, you're ready to raise money. Uh, but it depends on the idea, it depends on the market and the founding team, of course, that would dictate your investment strategy and who you're actually going to. It's also very popular for these venture studios to have their own fund, as I was saying. So it's much easier than for the startup to raise raise money down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're then looking at the corporate venture building model, then at that point, you don't have to worry that much about investors because you would essentially keep relying on the corporate to fund the startup. Um, mm-hmm. And you would do so at a seed stage and then later on at a series A stage um, as a venture studio, you would still be acting as, as one of the key investors. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, I, think, I think definitely venture development is one, something for the future. And um, it seems that, you know, it, it, it's picking up very fast, a lot of ground. Um, I've been um, part of this uh, global startup studio network. And there's a lot of discussions about how uh, they approach this multi-partnership startup building and uh, how they are treating the equity split, right? Are they creating certain, you know, uh, legal institutions outside of it or are they um bringing on corporate as you said into um into the venture studio as 
uh, investors and they get a share of all those startups. So there's a, a lot of models that you can you could you could follow and apply, but there's no particularly at this moment there's no uh, one model to rule. Um, so it's a lot uh, a lot of playing around uh, with it, right? Absolutely. So today we are in a very um, weird place and um, the reality is that we are, um, let's say, at home uh, most of the time, right? Working um, because of the COVID-19 reason and, you know, uh, some of the countries stepped out of the quarantines, uh, some of them didn't. Uh, so uh, it depends a lot on uh, on each uh, country's restrictions. But how do the corporates approach this situation? And are they investing in innovation right now? What's that? Uh, how's that situation right now? Yeah, it's definitely not a not a very positive um, <laughs> picture. What's happening right now? It's it's rather gloomy, and I think it all depends also on. The comp- on the uh, kind of economy that we're looking at but interestingly enough I've done um, so with Rainmaking for the last year or so I've been working at uh, uh, launching this brand in, especially in the in the UK and the US um, and uh, pretty much redesigning the entire website and trying to also ask these fundamental questions which are really important for for them as a company but also, especially with what's happening now, they're more important than ever to try to understand what's the next move that the corporates are going to be doing. And you could probably think that a lot of them, you know, would, would turn uh, their back on innovation. Um, so uh, just four months ago, um, we started this research with 300 C-level people across the Nordics, US and UK. Um, we surveyed these companies. Um, we also ran some interviews with uh, more of the larger ones, including people from Unilever, Daegio, um, NG, and many others. And the findings, I mean, are, are clear. It shows that companies do not invest enough in innovation, um, and too many companies actually conduct their innovation with a low success rate, um, and often without a clear innovation strategy in place. Um, and this is, this is done also outside of the pandemic. So the research started when COVID was kind of just kind of kicking off. Um, and then because we were in the middle of the research, when it sort of reached its peak in the UK, I decided to rerun the questions and see, I was actually curious, okay, what kind of financial actions are these companies taking right now? Or, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way they look at innovations or the budget allocated towards innovation, has anything changed? And, you know, as the, the, the pandemic actually resulted in, in even more companies focusing on their core business and cost cutting, um, turning, you know, their budgets away really from what could make them survive, uh, grow, um, and grow in the mean and long term. So it's clear indication that I think we're not really learning much from from what happened in 2008 recession when the companies that normally that got out of that recession and then they went against all odds and they invested in innovation, they uh, launched products and new products. For example, Samsung, they launched a new product in the middle of the entire recession. They came out as winning companies. They came out as market leaders 
and the actual impact, economical impact they suffered was considerably lower than companies that decided to obviously turn towards cost-cutting or mm. um, just preserving or doing business as usual. So I think the bottom line or the, the summary of this is really that in unprecedented times like this, innovation is essential. And it's also a message that the UK government um, made it very loud and clear in April when they've been pledging, um, I think it's over a billion pounds support for startups. Um, and then only a few weeks later, Germany announced two billion pounds support for the startups. Uh, so these are huge economies, huge countries, and the government showing such incredible support towards innovation, I think is just fantastic. And I think it should really come as a lesson and the corporations should should take uh, take notice of of what the government actually have been able to pull in the last couple of months. Um, I was just um, listening, and all these uh, things were popping up in my mind as you were you were you were saying that you know the the things that are happening. And I didn't knew that you rerun the the entire interview process, but that was uh, I think that was interesting to see also in the same time that. Um, you know how people's mindset changed and the fact that you know uh, they started cutting um, cutting costs and optimizing them right uh, optimizing costs it's uh, you know actually rooted in a fear-based decision right it's not in a growth uh, you know forward thinking or it could be right mildly um, uh, growing and innovation forward thinking um, when you optimize and cost as you are afraid of something right so from a cognitive behavioral point of view you are moving away from something um, so that is not a actual action of growth and expanding right so um, these were just you know th thoughts of mine running through my head as I was listening to you um, but um, yeah, we have examples like Samsung and they did amazing, right? And uh, uh, I think not only Samsung, there were a lot of other companies that pushed through the, um, you know, downfall of the, uh, of the, of the market, right? Of, of the economic market. I think it's just a matter of how you choose to do it. Um, you can, I mean, you, it's, it's not a binary thing, right? You could, continue doing it, but with less budget, right? It doesn't have to be big budgets investing in innovation, but you can optimize that budget and keep that budget and do it more smartly, right? Not in a very, let's say, a very, uh, I don't know, the word comes fashion into my head, but I don't think if, if fashion is in a very, you know, excessive amount of doing innovation, right? So you can always do yeah. innovation in a very, um, smart, ma uh, uh, smart way and you know low cost. Like right now, you can have uh, you know no code tools, uh, mix two three tools together, uh, do an MVP, and then uh, get that validation from the market, get some traction, and then rewrite the code. Right, so that should be that should be enough, and you don't need big budgets for that. Right. Yeah, I think it depends. I mean, there's. I don't want to sound like an academic but i think it depends on the strategy you're taking and samsung the one that we, we just talked about that's a clear kind of sign of a defensive strategy so they knew that they could it was obviously there was a bold um uh, 
move they've, they've done back then, it was, they knew the risk and you're perfectly right, Stefan, in, in moments like this, it's just, now it, all companies, but also any individuals, you, you would naturally turn inwards, right? When, when you're faced with challenges, you, the first thing that you're thinking about is survival. So that's, that's ingrained in everyone's minds. Yeah. Um, but Samsung, that was a defensive strategy. However, you could still look at cost cutting from an offensive strategy, but still being the kind of the push, the trigger towards digital transformation or experimentation. And the best example I have in mind, it's I was reading, I think it was last week, um, the retail chain, Marks and Spencer, m and um, they just announced um, I think it was a two billion uh, pounds fund um, towards digital transformation during this pandemic. Wow. And I know exactly like that the reaction is okay. This is fantastic. Obviously, if you read if you read the actual details, the most where the money comes from because this is obviously not additional funds that are going to the mm-hmm. business. Most of the funds are actually coming from cost cutting, but they've decided not just to cost cut and then basically become paralyzed or to continue doing business as usual. They decided to reallocate, restructure the cost and use the cost or use the budget that now basically becomes available uh, specifically towards changing their supply chain logistics. So the delivery. Um, Marks and Spencer is known for having, I don't know, hundreds of probably um, brick and mortars across the UK. They are now making a fundamental shift from uh, brick and mortars towards digital and delivery. Mm-hmm. So they just signed an, a, a partnership with Ocado, which is a delivery service. Mm-hmm. So now all the products will be available through Ocado, fundamentally reaching way more people than, than ever before. So that's an example of an, an offensive strategy where you can see that companies, they're still cost cutting, mm-hmm. which it's what we just talked about. We kind of, we, we sort of criticize that model but they're using the budgets in, a, in an innovative way or in a way to help them um, sustain the company forward. And um, I mean, it goes down to a very maybe um, you know, basic uh, universal law or uh, a rule of thumb, if you, if you depend on how you name it, is um, you know, if you're not allocating those money, that budget to something, it's gonna be spent on something anyway, right? So you could, you're gonna optimize and uh, cut costs and decide to not spend on ABC things like you usually spend in a usual quarter, but uh, those money gonna stay somewhere in the bank account. And you're if you're not gonna allocate it to some something, eventually it's gonna be spent on something, but it's gonna be sent without any kind of purpose. So yeah, I mean that's that's a very smart thing to do and be uh, have uh, an innovative approach to budget allocating and cost optimization yeah the thing is that it's great when you have budget to allocate towards innovation but Mm -hmm. also out of this research that we've done um, uh, many times actually shows that companies are not um, are not actually they don't have a measurement system in place and you know it's it's this famous quote that I, I I quote especially in marketing where uh, I mean, for me, what marketing is a science, to be honest, it's equally creativity and science, but you need to know exactly what, you know, if you've got returns on, on your marketing spent. And usually what happens is like, you just, you just, the quote basically says that you, 
you invested or you spent money on marketing um, and you know it works, but you don't know exactly, you know, half of my spend is wasted, uh, but I don't know exactly which half is actually turning the return on, on my investment. And is what, this is what happens mm-hmm. with corporations is that they, if you don't have a, a measuring system in place, and I'm not saying innovation is easy, but if you don't try to have some sort of KPIs in place, then you'll never be able to say if your innovation uh, projects actually worked. Um, and especially if you're an innovation manager or a senior manager, but reporting onto the CEO or the CFO, if you can't create a case for your innovation program, then obviously what's going to happen is that the innovation budgets will essentially get, will be cut mm-hmm. because you can't really show what worked and what didn't work. So it's also important. Yes. Great. You've got the budget, but, do you have the process in place and do you have the KPIs in place to actually make innovation happen? Yeah. Because very often it actually fails. It's a you know, data-driven or evidence-based driven uh, framework. It has to be. You have to, um, what's the board? You have to um, show in the books uh, on what you're spending that it's worth spending, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Diana, I'm going to roll back a bit to the beginning of our interview and um, conversation more than interview. This is not an you know, interview. But, um, so you had an amazing run from when you started studying and started working, owning your startup. And you know, so it was really a couple of years that you went through an amazing uh, growth curve and learn so many things and you are where you are today um, let's say somebody would want to follow your steps or let's say that red line of career growth what would be your recommendation for anybody that would like to do that to follow your steps um, study and then work internationally what would you suggest them to do Ah, you're killing me with this question because <laughs> it's just so hard because I, there was no, there was, there's no, like, there's no kind of iterative or scalable process, even for myself. I just feel like, to be honest, I think was a grain of luck as well. It was also a lot of passion and drive that sort of got me to where I'm today, but a lot of things sort of just happen. So sometimes you just, realize how you know how, how much control actually lives has over you even though you're trying even though you're trying to achieve certain things or go certain ways if it's not meant to be I just feel like it's just not meant to be it's also about timing and the only thing that I would say is just especially for listeners that are, are listening from Romania and if you're a, you know, a young person or maybe just graduating high school or you're thinking we're not sure if you want to go to university. Um, not to mention, this is just a, just slightly deviating from the subject. I think the educational system is going to be highly um, disrupting the upcoming uh, years. It's actually disrupting now. You could just go on Coursera or Udemy and sign up to a, I don't know, a Harvard degree or yeah. course or any some are paid, but you just pay a fraction of what you would actually pay for a degree. Um, and you've got a certificate. It's acknowledged by a lot of organizations. So I think anyway, 
it's quite different, obviously, what's happening now from what it was seven years ago. But I think all you just all you need. So again, going back to the listeners from Romania, is you just need the drive. You just need to believe in yourself. And from the little experience that I have here, from her working with people, and they know where I'm from, you you can see there's a a massive change in terms of how people actually perceive us uh, or they've they've actually grew to perceive us in the upcoming years from what we maybe knew back in the days. Everyone has an amazing um, kind of idea about people from Romania and how smart, educated, driven we are. So I hope this, what I'm saying, will kind of galvanize you or energize you to believe in you and. it's just just a matter of just taking a first step and don't think too much down the line where you're going to end up or what you're going to do it's just so important to get the first step uh apply to a university or talk to somebody that they've done it um or maybe you want to start something in romania if you've got an idea for a business um i think it's also a quite a great time for doing this um there's the government or there's the funds from european union which definitely come as a support so I think a lot of things have changed since a decade ago. Um, who knows? Maybe, maybe if things were different back then. Maybe I would have started something right after um, high school. But yeah, I think it's never too late. I'm looking forward to coming back in the upcoming months and um, uh, starting a few things in Romania. But that's a different discussion to have. Diana, <laughs> <laughs> um, before going into my last question. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and it was a fantastic conversation so far. What would be a book? What would you recommend as a book for our audience to read? Um, a business book, a fictional book. A business book. Both. Wow, we've we've been talking about business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a business book. Um, I think I just recently actually I was uh, reading um the uh the donut um economy mm-hmm. which it's talking I mean that's probably because something is more I'm actually curious to talk about you uh talk, talk about with you this about this uh sustainability uh conversation with you Stefan I'm I'm not I just have to confess I don't know exactly how much this trend has been adopted in Romania so far in terms of um sustainability products or how much actually consumers are paying attention to these kind of things but there's an interesting book which is called the um uh the donut economy which talks about um you know makes some really really interesting analogies between um sustainability and the environment and um social trends and how actually how the society is actually working right now um uh, so that's an interesting book that I would I would definitely recommend. Um, I tend to read a lot of kind of psychological brand related books um, and one that is quite old, but I think it will just never go out of fashion. I think it's um, Dan Ariely's book, which talks about um, um, basically consumers or us people in general just being highly irrational. Um, I think the actual title is quite long and I'm just, I have a lapse right now, I can't remember, but I think it's it's basically how to, um, it's it's called highly irrational and how to build marketing products when 
when you're basically highly rational. Uh, and it's a really, really interesting book, which talks about a lot of experiments that they've done, uh, which show how small things like holding, I don't know, a, a pint of cold beer when you're having a conversation could fundamentally affect your decision making just because of the temperature of a drink. I'm just giving a yeah, random example, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's an interesting book. Um, so I would definitely recommend that to any marketeer. Um, and then maybe a final suggestion, but it's not that much of a business book, but it's a if anyone here that listens and likes philosophy and sort of going through a philosophy journey back in time all the way to present days. Um, it's a book called Happy, mm-hmm. uh, which is written by Darren Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it's Darren Brown, the magician. <laughs> um, and it's quite an interesting book. It's, um, it's not a light read, I have to say. His, his language is quite elevated. But if you are a fan of philosophy and the different ideologies, I think it's a really interesting book to read. I have one book from, from him. Um, I think it's called... Um how to change minds or something something, yes. something similar so yeah yes. i didn't start it i bought it uh, i just read <laughs> a, a couple of uh, pages from it and i found it extremely um intriguing and you know i wanted to read more about it um as i said at the beginning i was saying that i was you know studying your profile and how you you, you became uh, the person you are today and in your LinkedIn bio, um, you're saying that you want to bridge the gap and bring all this know-how that you have to Romania or back to Romania, right? My question, my final question is, when are you going to do that? <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I should just um, kind of apologize because I haven't been, I think I've been doing a few things behind the scenes, but I haven't been very vocal about this in the last year or so and that mostly had to do with my um with with my role with raymaking um it's been a yeah it's been a really really busy year launching this campaign but it's now out the door um so when i say that i was doing a few things or behind the scenes so i think there's there's definitely extensive opportunity to support the growth um of the romanian ecosystem and um, it's something that I, I'm, I'm now more and more determined to do in the upcoming months and I've got a, a bit more time on my hands but you also got to think what are some of the most important elements that are missing or wh- where should you start right because there's so many things in my perspective that you could do and they could add value to the ecosystem right away um, one thing where uh, it just comes is becoming more and more clear that where um, the startups or the ecosystem as a whole would actually need uh, maybe more help would be towards funding and also opportunity for expansion for the startups. Um, And in that regard, I was, uh, before the pandemic kind of took off, um, I was in conversation with a couple couple of organizations here in the UK, um, including Capital Enterprise, to design a cross-innovation program between Romania and the UK. Um, with the idea of helping um, kind of C to Series A startup founders come to the UK. Um, it was a program that was supporting Sheffield um, as a region um, and trying to help Romanian startups basically come to the UK via Sheffield, get funding, work with corporations in Sheffield, which, by the way, are some of them are just absolutely huge brands, including 
Rolls-Royce, Boeing, and other um, aerospace companies. And that would have been a very interesting and good entry point for Romanian startups into the UK, um, helping them with marketing, business, business development, and um, also an investment readiness program. Obviously, with what's happening right now and travels being quite restricted, this has been put on hold. But I think there's what really excites me, and we've spoken about this, Stefan, it's that there's definitely a need for a shift in this corporate mindset mm -hmm. and the approach that larger corporations are taking towards uh, collaborating with startups. Um, so, you know, I think we should go as a, as a country, as an ecosystem, I think we should go beyond accelerators and incubators or hackathons or startup challenges. Um, and we just need to acknowledge they're fine. We got them. We've tried this. Um, they are a great springboard to what's coming next. And what is next to me is to actually um, look into internal venture building. Look how to help some of the larger corporations to kind of experience firsthand how it actually feels to create, test a solution from scratch and try to validate and scale it. And then, of course, what we just talked about, try to see what venture studio model actually works and try to see what corporations might be interested to work with us, right? So I guess that's a kind of a call to action if you want towards this at the end of the conversation is that, um, especially in these uncertain times, I think there's a temptation to pull the plug on innovation um, and just focus on, on business survival. I would say if we have any corporate leaders that are listening to this conversation that, um, try to look back at what happened in 2008, um, try to see some of the companies that have gone out of this recession um, as being market leaders and try to think about what actions you can take now from an innovation perspective, um, because it's, it's perfect timing. It's perfect timing yeah. to try to support startups, try to get a foothold in terms of innovation. And in terms of what I'm gonna be doing next, um, I'm planning on coming to Romania next month and at least kind of give myself a few months to work with you, uh, work with other people as well, uh, try to see what, what we can do in the market. Um, and that's for me, basically, I'm just giving myself the next six months, just purely focusing on this. Um, and I'm sure something good will come out of it sooner or later. <laughs> Definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. And, um, I'm happy. I'm happy that's happening. And just to uh, make a note on that, um, you know, corporations right now, they only need just an open mindset, uh, let's say a decent budget, and they can easily set a foot in new segments of the market, right? Because like you said, there's a lot of opportunity over there. So yeah, um, Diana, I'm looking forward to um, to have you back over here uh, on on Romanian grounds and uh, start <laughs> working and start uh, collaborating on different on different stuff. Um, yeah, this was great. I think this uh, this conversation was amazing, and we brought so much um, light on what venture development is and uh, also on on marketing stuff. If Thank you so much, Stefan. It was. It was a pleasure. I think your questions were absolutely spot on. And 
what you guys are doing uh, and i know you're rebranding but for now i don't want to i'm not going to say anything yeah, i'm just going to mention <laughs> no no i'm just going to mention cry adventures because that's that's still the name of the company but um what you guys are doing i think it's everyone should just just yeah just have a look at what you what you're building because you're definitely one of the kind of the pioneers of this new venture studio model in Romania. Um, I think there's enough ground for it. I think what we need is to kind of galvanize some investors um, and talk to some corporations that are brave enough to, to take the leap of faith and, and start working with you. Thank you. Thank you, Diana, for those words. And um, well, I agree. I'm, I'm over here and I'm waiting for you. Um, <laughs> Diana, thank you very much for, for uh, joining today and taking the time to have a conversation. Uh, looking forward for our next. Uh, maybe we're going to do a deep dive on the growth hacking part, right? Crunching data. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Um, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, share, and review our podcast because the voice of our community keeps us going forward. Find more episodes and discover different perspectives about tech and business and in our daily life. Thank you.